Good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew Gockenbach. Um, my wife, Rubia, today's actually her birthday. She's down in the nursery, so she won't hear me saying this, but um, she'll be up in a minute, hopefully, if my son decides to stay down there. But if you want to see her and wish her happy birthday, I've got a little kid, Diego and Priscilla. We've been coming here for about a year. Um, it's my privilege to share uh, the message with us this morning. We'll start out with a prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you um, for this morning. We thank you that we can be here together to worship you um, We thank you we can be here to be challenged by your word, to be encouraged by your word. We thank you for your reckless love that comes after us until we accept it, God. Um, We pray that you would um, just bless this word to us as a community and as individuals this morning, Lord. We love you and praise you and praise things in your name. Amen. So this morning I'll be kicking off um, a sermon series for this summer on the book of Colossians. I'll be covering the first eight verses, um, but also kind of doing an overview of the whole book. Um, and so, before we get too far in it, the, the last sermon series we had um, was called Blessed, and kind of about the Sermon on the Mount, and, and all the things that you know, Jesus preached, which you could go for years and years on. But I think, you know, there's a really important tie, I think, to draw between the, the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, and, and the Gospel, and then Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to note in Jesus' ministry for most of it until the end, you know, he was preaching on mountaintops. He was preaching outside the city. He wasn't preaching in the center of the city. And obviously Jesus was, was um, you know, crucified at the end of his ministry when he started going into the cities. So his message was kind of always on the mountaintops, kind of on the, a subversive message, one that was kind of counter to the culture that he was in at the time. And I think that continues to be true to this day. There was a a British psychiatrist that I was reading that said, masochism permeates Christianity to bless the poor, the meek, the persecuted, and to do good to those who hate you and forgive trespasses is both unnatural and appears to breed masochism. So if you think about it on the surface, the Sermon on the Mount is crazy, what Jesus is asking us to do. It's easy when we read the Bible to be like, yeah, yeah, okay, I've read that before. Yeah, that's good. Bless the poor, all these other things. And it's easy if we sort of contextualize that away and don't actually apply it to our lives. We can do that. But if you really start looking at it, it's, it's a really challenging text and really turns our lives upside down. Um, it shatters our assumptions about life and social interactions. And we can't any longer just assume that because the way everybody else does something is, is the right way to do it. Um, and I think often there's a temptation that our commitment, and this is the same for you know, everybody in all of history, but our commitment to our present economic and political structures and orders And social orders often causes us to kind of bypass biblical teachings and distorts how we read scripture because we we have a tendency to read it through our own sort of cultural lenses and sort of get rid of the stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable and sort of put it into a spiritual realm or something instead of the physical one. Jesus' kingdom was definitely an earthly kingdom. It was not of this earth, but at the same time had a lot of earthly implications. But Jesus' kingdom was not a kingdom like the kingdoms of the earth, that every kingdom that's ever existed on this earth has needed anger and violence to create and establish the kingdom and to take what is it, what it wasn't theirs to create that kingdom. But that is not what the kingdom of God is. It is a joyous people, uh, a celebration of people giving what they have to others. And when we live in that kingdom, it's a complete and total upsetting of our assumptions, our logics, our values, our presuppositions. So as we get into this book of Colossians, just kind of keeping that in mind, that the Sermon on the Mount and the message in the go- of the gospel is a radical redefinition of life and contrasts greatly to Rome, which was the audience of this book originally, or to us, and really turns power upside down. 
it's easy for us to, and there's a temptation to accommodate, to assimilate to our culture. But when we really live in Jesus' kingdom, we will be a prophetic minority or a deviant subculture. I don't think Jesus ever really envisioned a society that was con- where the power structures were controlled centrally. But uh, a Bible commentarist, Michael Wilcox, said that in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, as a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. So we are no longer controlled then when we believe in the gospel. We are no longer controlled by what the world thinks is critical. The kingdom of God has been said by Marx and others to be an opiate for the masses. But what I would argue is that it's not an opiate, but it's a smelling salt. It wakes us up from the spell that the world and its values have on us. And the distorted values that minimize humanity. The values that say that power, comfort, success, recognition are what we fight for. Which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Are we living in this kingdom? Are we living in our earthly kingdoms? This is the question that Paul is challenging the Colossians on. There's often a danger, I think, as we read, as we encounter the scriptures, and it's natural to do so, and to encounter them in our own cultural context, our own historical moment. But I think it's really important that we kind of can take our own cultural lenses off and think about what the context of this letter was or of this book was. Because often our natural instinct is to sort of take the hard parts and sort of culturalize them away and not, and not really understand what the original message was. So with that, I want to start um, this, this series on Colossians with a little bit of background on the city of Colossae. I think it's important to understand the context to really understand this letter and, and maybe the uniqueness of this letter compared to the other letters. So Paul wrote a lot of letters that made it to the Bible and others that probably didn't. And pretty much they were all, all the other letters were to really important cities that Paul visited and spent time in. You kind of see in Paul's ministry, he kind of had a theory of ministry of go to all the kind of urban capitals, go to the big important cities, and, it, and when you evangelize those places, people are, people are there from all over the world or all over the Roman world, and they're going to go back to their home places and they're going to take the gospel with them as they go back. But Colossae is not one of those places. Colossae is a forgotten industrial town in the corner of the Roman Empire. It had once been prosperous as it was on a major trade route. It was famous for dark red cloth. But about 160 or so years before this letter was written, the Roman roads, which connected all of Rome, kind of rerouted to some extent near them, and a, and a new city sprang up on that new road that took the cloth trade from them, took most of their economic power, and to add insult to injury, in 17 AD, so probably about 40-ish years before this was written, there was a devastating earthquake that destroyed the city. So you have a city that was in modern terms, let's say, had a big factory that was building all kinds of things. All of a sudden, changes to you know, geopolitical things, shuts down their factory, people lose jobs. And then to add injury to insult, there's an earthquake that basically destroys the place. They were definitely the losers of the world economy. They were the losers of the competition of the world's economy. And in some ways, not all that dissimilar to, let's say, somewhere in the Midwest, in the, in the, in the U.S., a city that used to kind of have a... A, going, a strong economy, not the best city in the country, but a strong economy that's kind of on hard times. About 300 or so years after this letter was written, Colossae falls off the map. It's never been excavated. And there's not a lot known about it really beyond that time. Interestingly, the, 
the religious environment in Colossae also is not all that dissimilar to, I think, what we live in today. Um, there's a lot of exotical, exotic spiritual pursuits and mystery religions. Kind of for the first time with the Roman Empire coming into power and creating this huge, massive structure that, you know, is bigger than any empire that's ever existed and stood longer than any empire that's ever existed. And with their roads and connectivity, for the first time really in history, people could understand and learn about people from all over the place. So there's a, a mixing of religion and, and in some ways sort of a postmodern, you know, using our own terms, feel to that. Basically, everybody agreed there was a whole lot of gods everywhere. So there was a lot of syncretism with people borrowing things from all kinds of different religions. You know, different from our times, it wasn't done by individuals. That would have been sort of unthought of. But kind of people groups were taking a bit of this, bit of that. Um, and you definitely see that probably being a, a temptation here in the, in the Colossian church. It's also interesting to note that basically everybody at the time, with the exclusion of this tiny little people group from Israel, believed there was a multitude of gods that each home, each association, each guild, each city, each ethnic group, each empire had their own gods and deities. And nobody really denied the existence of the other gods. And really, even when you read the, you know, the, the Old Testament, there's not necessarily a denial of the other gods in a lot of places, at least early on in the scriptures. It was more that you know, we have the true God. But basically nobody beyond those who profess belief in Yahweh, in, in the God of Israel, questioned the legitimacy of other gods or the practices of worshiping them. So it's pretty radical to be a monotheist at this point. And so, so much so that Rome you know, called Christian, the early Christians atheists and, and often and blamed them for a lot of problems because they weren't giving honor to the gods and so that's why bad things happened. When there was a fire that went through Rome, Nero blamed the Christians because they were atheists because they weren't giving the regards to the gods. So I think, again, it's important to have that context in mind um, as we head into this passage. So... It's also interesting to note for Paul and his relationship to this city. So basically every other city that gets a letter in the Bible from Paul, Paul spent a fair amount of time in that city planning the church, or at least was involved pretty directly in that church. Colossae is by far the least important city that Paul wrote a letter to that appeared in the Bible. It's also almost certain that he never visited the city of Colossae, which is the only city of, of the letter, Paul's letters that he never would have visited. We learn in, in Colossians 1, it was planted by a guy named Epaphras. We don't really know much about him. You know, so looking at historical context and geography, it's likely he was converted in Ephesus, which is a nearby-ish city. Likely was trained by Paul in Ephesus, and, and there's a decent chance Paul would have sent him back to his hometown, basically, and said, you know, go back to Colossae and help this church out there. So, you know, we have this city of Col- Colossi, not that important of a city, kind of on a hard economic hard times, lots of religion mixing. Paul never been there. It's also really important, I think, to have the context that Paul is writing this letter from a jail, Roman jail cell, for being imprisoned, for basically challenging the, the hegemony of the empire. He was unjustly imprisoned, even by Roman law, was unjustly imprisoned as he was a Roman citizen and shouldn't have been thrown in prison for what he was doing, even by their own laws. And he was proclaiming, though, an alternative reality, an alternative vision of reality that another world was possible. But it was an animating way of life that was subversive to the Roman Empire. And I think, again, this is where our own cultural lenses and sort of democracy and everybody's equal and all those other things kind of doesn't let us see what, what, what the gospel was in the early church in, in many contexts. So for the, early, for the Roman Empire, 
all over the place in all kinds of ancient texts, you know, it talks about Rome being light. Put your hope in Rome. Rome is going to save you. Rome is what brings prosperity. Rome is what brings peace. There's a, you know, an old historical document, a letter between politicians, basically. And it says, Caesar, sent to us and our descent, Caesar was sent to us and our descendants as a savior. He has put an end to war and he has set all things in order. Caesar. Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of all early times. And it says, the birthday of the God, doesn't even say Augustus, but it says the God, but he, they were talking about Augustus, Caesar, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. Therefore, let all reckon a new era, beginning from the date of his birth, and let his birthday mark the beginning of a new year. So Caesar's birthday started the calendar. Again, have something in common with Jesus. Caesar is called the Savior. He said all things in order was the hope. And we talk about the gospel. Caesar is also referred to as Lord and Savior over and over and over again in the ancient text. And he could, only he could bring peace and prosperity. And one leading historian you know, at the time of the Roman Empire said that Caesar wiped away our sins and revived our ancient virtues. So again, when we read the Bible, and we're going to get to this in a second, you know, we, often, we read it through this lens of sort of our own modern thinking. But you can imagine here understanding all these words that people are using for Caesar— Start calling Jesus Lord and Savior. Start calling him the forgiver of sins, saying he's the bringer of peace and prosperity. Sets Jesus up directly as an opposition to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire told a story of the Pax Romana, if you remember from high school history class. The Roman peace. And it was a brilliant piece of propaganda, basically, that legitimated the continuity of their military oppression of anybody that didn't agree with them. They said they were the bearer of cosmic peace, of fertility, of prosperity. They had a story of salvation that came through Rome and global control. If you were inside of Rome, inside the power structures of Rome, then you were protected by that peace. But if you dared defy them, you were not. For the Roman world, you were either Roman or you were barbarian. There was no other options. They didn't care where you were from. If you were not Roman, you were a barbarian. All Roman life, all feasts and festivals, all honored this Pax Romana. The image, too, of Caesar was everywhere. Every building, every street corner, all your coins, all the temples, lampshades in people's houses, water jugs, cups, plates, everything across the Roman Empire was stamped with the image of Caesar. You couldn't go out on the street without seeing Caesar everywhere. Every time you bought something, Caesar was on it. Everything in your house had Caesar on it. Every street corner had Caesar So you can see the power then of what we're going to get to in Colossians about the image. But the Pax Romana was the fruit of violence and built on military threats and bullying and with antithesis to God's shalom or God's peace. So why then would a people group set up to worship someone who was crucified by this empire? And that's really the question we have here with the gospel. So the peace that Jesus brings then which is in direct juxtaposition or direct opposite of the Pax Romana, is a piece that really turns the world upside down. So while Rome said, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to invent the cruelest way of killing you, and then I'm going to kill you that way through crucifixion, Jesus says that it is not by being the doer of crucifixion, but by being the recipient of crucifixion that my kingdom is won. And you see that in Colossians 1.20. He took evil, Jesus took evil upon himself until evil exhausted itself. 
Evil gave him everything they had and evil ran out of it. And Colossians 2.14 says that he canceled the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. So when people were crucified in Roman times, there was, there was nailed to the cross a list of all the things they did to get themselves crucified, which was basically a threat to everybody else saying, look, if you do any of these things here, you're going to end up here too. This has been paid for. So when Paul says that Jesus nailed on the, that on the cross with Jesus was nailed all of our sins, it's to say our sins have been paid for. But in Roman times, someone that was crucified was literally the worst thing that could happen to you. Jesus rejected the ways of the world's power to take his kingdom. He rejected violence for righteous ends. And he rejected the insider-outsider thinking of the Roman Empire. The peace of Jesus was not just for the insiders, but it was for all of creation. Not just people, but in, in this letter, more than any letter in the Bible, Paul's talking about that this is for the cosmos, for everything, for all of creation, for Roman, barbarian, for Jew, for Gentile. So I was only given chapter verse 1 to 8, but uh, Mark and Jen aren't here, so I can skip a little bit to a chapter that's not mine. But they, they, they know this. But, but anyway, I'm gonna, not going to spend a lot of time on this. I think this is like the most beautiful passage in the whole Bible, maybe. It's probably a poem. Probably loses a whole ton in reading it in English. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I think it's really important to get the general context of where the book of Colossians is, and also really understand how Jesus is being set up as this strong juxtaposition or opposite of, of Caesar. And we talked about the image of Caesar everywhere. The image of Caesar is everywhere on every single thing. When you're a citizen of Rome or not, you can't go anywhere without seeing the image of Caesar. So Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when we read that now, taking out any of the context we've already given, it's pretty easy to be like, yeah, okay, that stuff all kind of makes sense. And if I showed this to like my friend at work that, you know, is an agnostic or something, they would probably read that and be like, all right, you know, I don't agree, but yeah, okay. But given the context of Rome, we can see like pretty much this whole thing is like every single word in this gets you crucified, pretty much. Every, there's, every single sentence has like five things in it that is challenging Caesar. Every single sentence is setting up Jesus as somebody that's setting up this alternative to Jesus. Or Jesus setting up alternative to Caesar, I should say. To call Jesus the image of the invisible God, the creator of the, the, the earth, before him are all things, and to him all things were created, is to set up Jesus as a competitor to Caesar, and Caesar wasn't a fan of that. So we see then here, for the early church, and really for us too, on some level, but to proclaim Jesus as Lord in this time for these people was treason, and the penalty was death. The Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel, the Bible, the story of Jesus, is antithetical to the constant strife for power that is needed to maintain an empire. 
And this is not something that just started with Jesus, but it's something we see throughout the whole Bible. And it, this could be a whole another sermon into itself, which I'm not going to get into detail on. But even throughout the whole you know, Hebrew scriptures, we see that for, for God and his people, the values of God are antithetical to the constant striving for power and empire, economic progress, and global control. Israel, God's people, were set up without a king. And they asked for a king. And Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, kind of being God's voice with them, said, are you sure you want a king? A king is going to come and they're going to oppress you. They're going to tax you. They're going to take your daughters and make them work. They're going to take your sons and send them to war. They're going to take your, your, your crops. They're going to do all these crazy things to you. Do you really want this? And they said, yeah. And again, in our modern sort of democratic times, not that crazy. But in a world where everybody has a king and everybody has that one leader and not all people are equal, that's kind of a crazy concept. Israel had a crazy concept. Everybody was equal when there wasn't a king. And every single time you see in the, the, the Hebrew scriptures that Israel starts to kind of start empire building and their king starts acting like the kings of their neighbors, God sends another king that's stronger than them and says, nope, and wipes them out and sends them into exile. Say, try again. And then they come back and they do it again and they look like their neighbor kings again and God wipes them out again. And each time the prophets come and time after time said, you're not living up to the values of God's kingdom. You're failing to care for the marginalized. You're failing to care for the poor. You're failing to care for the needy. You're failing to be, to practice mercy and justice and be humble. And so I'm going to bring you down. So I think it's important again to understand that's the context here. So the book of Colossians is presenting us with a cosmic perspective of one who knows the secrets of the universe. Not just the earth, but everything. The book kind of sweeps across time from creation in chapter 1 to the end times in chapter 3 while answering a lot of really important questions about the source of wisdom and knowledge and about humanity's only hope for true peace. Paul's letter to the Colossians is a direct challenge to the hegemony or the you know, monopoly on power of Rome. The gospel of Jesus is a challenge to faith in the empire. Jesus, Paul and Jesus himself declared, is not... Is not Caesar, is Savior, is Lord, is the Son of God, is forgiver of sins, is the source of fertility, prosperity, and growth. Again, doesn't sound that crazy to us, but in a place where you know, your supreme leader tells what you do, and if you don't agree with them, you're on a cross tomorrow, that's a crazy thing to say. Colossians, then, is also a really key text, really in the whole Bible, a key text for understanding the place of human beings in the universe and who Jesus was. It has a, what we could call in a sort of theological term, high Christology. So it's a really high view of who Jesus is. Not just the creator of the, of, not just the savior, but the creator of the earth and the recreator. And it, this book shows us how communities should conduct themselves in chapter three, how we should act towards each other, how to, we should act to our family, and how we should live in God's kingdom. It's also important, again, to remember that Paul is writing this from a jail cell. But he's not writing it shaking his fist and saying, one day I'm going to get out of here and overthrow you. But he's saying that even though the bullies of Rome have put me in this prison cell, they will not have the final say because another world is possible. And Jesus has ushered in that other world. Jesus' victory comes through his own sacrifice and love, not through the ways of the kingdom of this earth. I'm a little bit of a Lord of the Rings nerd too. And in that kind of metaphor there, the temptation is always going to be to put on 
Sorry for those of you who don't know Lord of the Rings. And sorry if I ruin anything, but it's been out for a long time. <laughs> Tolkien wrote it like 60 years ago or something, so you've had your chance. But the, there's a ring of power. And when you put on the ring of power, you become the most powerful thing in the earth. And there's people on the you know, good side who want to put on the ring of power to defeat evil. But luckily they don't do that. And they try to destroy that ring of power. But the temptation is to take the things of the earth, so take the things of the Roman Empire, stick them on, and I'm going to use that to create good. But God knows, and Jesus knew, that when we take the tools of the evil people and try to throw, overthrow them with those, we're only going to turn ourselves into that. And that's not what Jesus did. Paul is telling us, and telling his readers, really, that Rome and its empire is not going to be the same as the dominant forces of this earth. So we have here this quote that I want to read to you from a really cool book called Colossians Remixed. And it says, He is asking them, Paul is asking the Colossian church, to change the way they live, not just in an internal and spiritual way, but in the way they relate to one another. Gone is the arrogance and the relationship of power that pervaded the empire. In its place is a relationship of equality. There are no racial divisions, no division between slave and free. They are instead to be humble towards each other, seeking one another's forgiveness for wrongs, treating one another with love, and following the example of the head of this alternative kingdom. So the empire now is no longer the dominant force in the lives of Christians because Jesus and his kingdom are taking its place. It's no wonder that the Christians were persecuted. Probably one of the most influential books in my life was a book called The Upside Down Kingdom. And there's a phrase in that book that has really stuck with me, and especially was sticking with me in these last few weeks, And it said that life in the upside-down kingdom is a life with joyous detachment from the pressures of human institutions. Or I think you could say joyous detachment from the pressures of human values. And I think about how tragically untrue that is about myself most of the time. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all the craziness of our lives and not have that joyous detachment. Yesterday, as I was out um, washing my grill with my, you know, hose or whatever, and my son was out there kind of playing with me, and as I would spray water at him, and, you know, he was just the happiest kid in the world, flapping his hands up and just with the biggest smile you've ever seen. And I just think, that's joyous detachment. When was the last time I felt that about being with my father? And how easy it is for us to be so concerned. As I was washing that grill, we're in the midst of selling our house, Closes in a couple of months, or in a couple of weeks. We're moving in a couple of weeks. There's just a restructure at work. 10% of the people, my colleagues were laid off. I've got a new job. All kinds of craziness going on in my life. And it's, I'm out there thinking about those things sort of as I'm watching this. And then seeing my son, who's just, he could care less about anything, any of those things. He's, there's, a, there's a hose and there's water and he's playing with his dad. And he's just the happiest kid in the world. And to me, that was like the most perfect picture of joyous detachment. A joyous detachment from the human pressures of our human institutions and values and striving after things. And again, how tragically untrue that is about my life most of the time. But Paul here is giving us hope that we can have that tragic or that joyous detachment. So with that, we get to in our passage here, which is Colossians 1, um, 1 to 6. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So again, we see Paul starting this letter, like a typical letter at that time, introducing himself. But we see that word peace there pretty early on. And again, in a society where Pax Romana is what it's about, this is the Pax or peace of Shalom, the peace of God. It's a different kind of peace on different terms. And the themes of faith, hope, and love we find kind of all across the New Testament. But here I think it's interesting that faith and love here are springing from the hope stored up in you. And it's that hope that we have that another world is possible that gives us that faith and that love. And it's when we're living that out, we become an advanced footprint of God's new kingdom with the true message of the gospel, which again, we read true message of the gospel and we think, yeah, okay, true message of the gospel. And even today, the word gospel really only means, you know, what is really a religious term, right? But the word gospel is good news. It was the gospel of Caesar was what anybody would have heard. The only people that had gospel in the Roman Empire was Caesar. So to say the true message of the gospel was obviously challenging that. But here we see Jesus, who is the word who became flesh, who is the creator of the universe, who is the image of God, who Colossians 1.17 said, straddled heaven and earth, holding them together again at last and ushering in a new creation. So in Genesis, we have the fall of creation. This is also a whole other sermon. But there's a fall of creation. Heaven and earth are together in Eden. And when sin enters, sort of heaven, God's realm, and earth, you know, people's realm, which had been tied together, is torn apart. And the temple in the Old Testament was that one spot where heaven and earth kind of met each other and over- intersected. And now, heaven and earth are intersecting in the people that are following Jesus. And Jesus is holding together heaven and earth and is one day going to bring them back together. And that is the good news that we have this morning. And that is the good news that Paul is writing to the Colossians about. So then the next part here says, In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So 1.6 says, All over the world the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. In Acts 19.10 it says that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, which is where Colossae was, have heard the word of the Lord. So this salvation, this good news, is not just for Romans. It's for everyone. But to declare Jesus as Lord of all, as we've seen, is kind of a scandal in the Roman Empire and really a scandal now, too. Monotheism, really, in general, is a scandal because you're saying that only your God is the God. In a place and time where religion was pretty regionalized or nationalized, early Christians, like we talked about before, were called heretics and atheists for denying other gods. But we see in Rome that the Roman values take people and basically tear them up and eat them, spit them out to accomplish what Rome wants. But here we see that the gospel is personified to be at work in the world and using those, using us as commissioned to proclaim that gospel. So we see here that Jesus is both the creator of the original world, Genesis, you know, Genesis world, and the recreator of humanity that has lost itself. Rome and Caesar at the time were seen as the only bringers of fertility and prosperity. But here we see that the gospel is bringing peace. The gospel is bringing fruit. 
The gospel is bringing growth. So here we have this quote from N.T. Wright. Probably never preached a sermon without quoting N.T. Wright. Love the guy. Read anything, almost. And it's great. But he wrote a commentary for Colossians. And, and I wrote, this phrase really stuck out to me. He said, God is doing through the gospel what he always intended to do. He is sowing good seed in the world and preparing to reap a harvest of human lives recreated to reflect his glory. So we have here this letter to the Colossian church in a forgotten town, in a forgotten place, in the corner of an empire. A place where an early church, you can imagine, was scared and trying to figure out their way. In a world where lots of religions were mixed together and were calling Jesus Lord and Savior could have given you the death penalty. But also in a place where there's this little secret that a new world is possible. That this world that exists and is pretty terrible is not what it was meant to be. And that the God of the universe came to this world, lived a perfect life in this world, took all the evil that the world had upon itself until evil exhausted itself to create this possibility for this new kingdom, this new way of life. An alternative to the rat race of competition and winning over community and love. An alternative to seeing other people as commodities to be used and abused. And an alternative to a dogmatic religiosity that says, if you do this, 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 and this, then God will be satisfied in you. And only if you do this, this, and this. Paul tells his, the city of or the Colossians to move past the focus on diet, to move past the focus on worship style and holy days, as they are but shadows to the substance that is Christ. The message says in verse Colossians 2.7, schools out, quit studying the subject and start living it. So my prayer for us this morning is that we as a community would resist the temptations of empire and power and the world's values, but instead that we might be an outpost for a new creation, an outpost for the hope that heaven and earth will be reunited one day and is reunited in us, that we might live the truth of Christ's evil over victory and be an embodied witness for the truth that another world is possible. How then do our lives differ from those of our friends and our neighbors who don't live in the light of that victory and that knowledge that the world is another world is possible? How do we spend our money? How do we view our jobs? How do we raise our kids and how do we pick a place to live different than our friends and neighbors? Another really influential book and author for me was a guy named Shane Claiborne. And he said, we have not shown the world another way of doing life. Christians pretty much live like everybody else. They just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus along the way. The gospel of Jesus is not living life like everyone else and sprinkling in Jesus along the way. But the gospel is being captivated by the new creation that Jesus offers us. And not slipping back like Israel did and like we do so often into striving for success on the world's terms. The gospel is a joyous detachment from the values of this world because we know they don't really matter. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to proclaim an absolute truth about Jesus, but we don't live in the light of that truth. If our lives are not reflecting the values and the truth that we're preaching, then they're 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 worthless. Rome proclaimed their truth with violence and power. 
But Jesus proclaimed his truth by taking evil on himself until evil exhausted itself. Jesus did not take power from on the world's terms. So how can we then live that joyous detachment? How can we be subversive to the worldviews that idolize the American way of life or the Western way of life that flourish on economic exploitation, violence, where people are commodities to be used or abused? Or how can we choose the way of Jesus who has rescued us from the domination of darkness in our hearts, who has taken all our evil and all our sin upon himself? Following Jesus will necessarily create a tension with the powers of the world. Praise God we don't live in a place where that's going to get us on a cross right now, but it will always be a tension. We should not comfortably fall into the world's economic and political structures on any side of the aisle. N.T. Wright also said that on the cross, Jesus allowed evil to do its worst, and when evil made its last possible move, Jesus bore the weight of the world's evil to the end and outlasted it. We worship a God who took the worst that evil had and outlasted it. That is the hope we have. That is the the hope that another world is possible. People will only believe that truth in Jesus when we live that truth with integrity to the radical vision of turning the world's power structures on their head. The story that the world wasn't meant to be the broken place it is, that my heart wasn't meant to be the broken Think self-destructive place that it is will be more compelling when we're living it out instead of conforming to the world's ways and values and sprinkling in a little bit of Jesus along the way. People reject the gospel and Christians most of the time, in my opinion, because we're sprinkling in Jesus along the way of our regular lives and that's not something that's attractive. People will still reject that another way is possible, but in a different way. So often we proclaim or pronounce the claim of Christ's uniqueness with arrogance Instead of unswerving but humble confidence and conviction we see in the letter of Colossians and we see in Paul. May we live in this upside down kingdom that Jesus established that Paul is writing to the Colossians to hold on to. May we believe that another world is possible, another kingdom is possible. May we not fall into the temptations to value what the kingdom of Rome or the Pax Americana believes that the kingdom of Jesus would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that it would change the way we live, the way we work, where we live, how we spend our money, and how we spend our time, that we might have a joyous, childlike detachment, and that other people might look at us and say, why is that person so happy? Why is that person so joyously detached from all these things that are stressing me out? As As societies get richer, we get more depression, we get more suicide, we get more mental health problems. Because the more you have, the harder it is to detach. The more you have, the more you have to protect, and the more you get stressed at night when you go to sleep. Proverbs says it. A rich man doesn't sleep real well because he's got a lot of things he can worry about. May we have a childlike, joyous detachment, and may those around us ask us about why we have that. May we be able to say that another world is possible and spread that hope. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this, this morning. We thank you for your gospel your good news, that another world is possible. We pray that we wouldn't fall into the temptations of the gospels of this world, of the values of this world, but you would give us a joyous, childlike detachment, God, that another world is possible. I pray that like you gave to the Colossian church, you would encourage us 
And from the hope that comes from us, there would be faith and love. And you would transform us as individuals, as a community, and use us to be a light and a blessing to a dark world, God. We love you and praise you and pray these things in your name. Amen.